Kamal, I'm sure, will share with us the impact that our burnout uh, has on our patients. So Dr. Tansky has arrived, so I feel comfortable now introducing our speaker. Um, Kamal Sati, MBBS, is a native of Pakistan who uh, completed her a medical degree with honors at the Aga Khan University in Karachi. She subsequently has, uh, I've learned, sort of been our, a silent scholar um, working uh, both in research labs in medical school, but also at Vanderbilt and Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, uh, working in basic science research on the uh, heights of intestinal villi and expression of the GLUT2 gene. She uh, therefore had four publications already, um, spent some time near and dear to our hearts, um, maybe not with Dr. Maudlin, but on the World Health Organization, Organization Polio Eradication Project as well before joining us in residency here three years ago. And we are pleased that she will continue her scholarship here starting her Leadership Preventative Medicine residency uh, here at, uh, at Dartmouth and TDI so that we will look forward to continued uh, engagement with Kamal in our program and, um, and some more scholarly work. So. With that, we've got a, a, a high-tech presentation. With everyone, hopefully, has your yes. So we have a we have an interactive presentation that Kamal's going to do on two computers. So let's. <laughs> for us, for us, it is what it is. So she's going to challenge our limits as she has throughout. So Kamal, thank you. Put the spotlight on. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for coming today. I'll be talking about physician suicide and burnout. I'll begin by talking about physician suicide, how it is different from the rest of the population, and how it is connected to burnout. I will then move on to talking about physician burnout, why we should care about it, and what are the reasons behind it. And then I'll discuss some of the approaches and interventions that have been tried to help with burnout. Towards the end, I'll share some of the resources available uh, locally. But first, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and where I'm from and why I got interested in this topic. So I'm from a small town in northern Pakistan called Marie. That's a picture from my village. And this is my medical school, Aga Khan University. I have lots of great memories from my time spent there. Uh, that's also where I met my wonderful husband. And, but I have a rather distressing memory from my time there as well. It was from my final year in medical school. Uh, this one morning, I was going to grab a cup of tea when I saw that the male hostel was surrounded by security guards. I learned that 21-year-old Ishfaq's body was found hanging from the ceiling fan. He was last seen two days ago. We were all obviously devastated. I personally struggled with very unexpected feelings of guilt and responsibility for the death of a student that I'd never met. I felt he was part of our community, and his family had entrusted us with the responsibility of training him as a physician. Certainly, there was something that was missed. There was something that we could have done. It is important to talk about this today because we do what we do to save lives. So are the lives of the healers any less important than those being healed? Since then, I've heard about and I've read about many such tragic stories, and every time it raises questions. Are we as a community capable of changing this? Are we accountable at some level to the patients and to the parents? Are we accountable to the person who at a very young age decided to take this path? Was he aware of the occupational hazards associated with this? I don't know. Did his family know? I don't know. Do we talk about this enough? Do we actively think about this when we see a colleague in distress? Physician suicide emerges in its gravity not only because of the personal loss that it causes, but because it denies the society of one of its highly trained members. It needs to be paid attention to, and it needs to be talked about. But I promise you this presentation will be more than just about my feelings. So if you like numbers, this is why you should care. Every year in the United States, we lose about 300 to 400 physicians to suicide. That translates into one to two medical school classes. It translates into about a physician every day. And it translates into one million patients losing their physicians to suicide. 
the risk is higher compared to the general population, about two times as high in male physicians and about four times as high in female physicians. It's also a disproportionate cause of mortality compared to other professionals, so about two to four times in male physicians and about four to five times in female physicians. This meta-analysis pooled data from 24 studies, and it showed that male physicians were about 1.41 times more likely to commit suicide than the general public. Uh, the same study showed that female physicians were about 2.3 times more likely to commit suicide compared to the general population. Even though my talk today focuses mostly on physicians, no one in the healthcare profession is immune to the unique challenges faced in patient care. A lot of work that was done on second victim syndrome was started after the death of Kimberly Hyatt who was a longtime critical care nurse at Seattle Children's Hospital and committed suicide seven months after she overdosed, accidentally overdosed a baby. Many of us in this room today can, realize, can relate to the realization of making a mistake and then agonizing about it and then having the events run in your mind over and over again, questioning your competence. It can be debilitating both personally and professionally. So what is the explanation for this? Well, the strongest correlates for suicide in the general population are mood disorders and substance abuse. So is it that physicians have higher rates of mood disorders and substance use? Well, the rates of depression in the general population are the same as those reported in physicians. They're slightly higher in medical students, and then that number evens out. However, it's possible that due to the stigma associated with mental health issues in this profession, people don't report it. In a study of 8,000 surgeons published in the Archives of Surgery in 2011, only 26% of surgeons with suicidal ideation sought care. Had it been the general population, 44% people would have gotten care. The rates of substance abuse, again, that are reported in literature are about the same, 8 to 12% in physicians and about 9.4% in the general population. It's also possible that physicians have better access to means, and that's why they have higher rates of completed suicide compared to the general population. Work-related distress can be another cause. The same study pointed out that for each one-point increase in the components of burnout, there was a 5 to 10% likelihood for suicidal ideation. And then there are personal characteristics that we cannot ignore, and I'll talk about them a little bit more when I talk about burnout. So the study showed that physicians who reported suicide were more likely to be between ages 45 to 54. They were more likely to be divorced. If they'd made a medical error in the past three months, they were three times as likely to report suicidal ideation. If they, it increased with overnight call frequency, and it increased if you worked more than 40 hours a week. Marriage and children were both protective factors. For physicians who completed suicide, they were much more likely than the general population to have a recent job problem. They were less likely to have death of a loved one recently. They had higher levels of barbiturates and benzodiazepines in their blood. And they were less likely to have gotten treatment for a mental health problem. So where does burnout come into the picture? Well, burnout has a substantial dose-response relationship with suicidal ideation that persists after controlling for symptoms of depression. The relationship is reversible. So once burnout gets better, suicidal ideation improves. This is a table from that study showing that as depersonalization and emotional exhaustion increase, which are both parts of burnout, suicidal ideation increases, irrespective of whether you screen positive or negative for depression. However, if you have both burnout and depression, your risk doubles for suicidal ideation. Before I move on to the next part of my presentation, I would like to remind everyone that this is a serious and a common problem. We need to think about this when we see our colleagues in distress, and we need to pick up on the subtle signs of distress. 
It's challenging to recognize these signs because a lot of times for physician work is the la last thing to go. We know that physicians are not forthcoming about their stressful experiences, so recognizing this problem can be challenging, and we need to create a sense of community so we can help each other as partners and friends. I would like to share with you this article uh, that a physician recently last month published in New England Journal of Medicine, where he describes his experience with suicidal ideation and depression. And he goes on to say, my name is Adam, I'm a human being, I'm a husband, a father, a pediatric palliative care doctor, and an associate program director. I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I have a history of depression and suicidal ideation. In the end, he says, when a colleague dies from suicide, we become angry, we mourn, we search for understanding, and we try to process the death. And then we go on to doing things the same way we always have, somehow expecting different results. One definition of insanity. It's way past time for change. With that, I will move on to the second part of my presentation that focuses on burnout. <laughs> um, Social psychologists Christina Maslach and Susan Jackson have done a lot of work on work-related uh, distress and burnout. The Maslach Burnout Inventory is uh, the most widely used instrument to measure burnout, and it describes burnout in a, in a three-dimensional syndrome. The first part of it is emotional exhaustion, which is the feeling that you have nothing more left to give. You feel completely drained, and you experience emotional fatigue. Depersonalization, where you start feeling callous towards people and you objectify people. And a decreased sense of personal accomplishment, where you start feeling that you're not good enough anymore, and oftentimes you may feel like an imposter at work. Even though we describe burnout in these three domains, it does not fully capture the feelings one experiences when they're suffering from it. One person's burnout may be very different from another's. This is an epidemic with more than half of our physicians in 2014 reporting burnout in the United States. It has dire consequences to both the healthcare system and to the person. It is estimated by 2025 we will be in a shortage of physicians by 50,000 to 90,000. And with so many of our physicians feeling unwell, that number may go up. I'll talk about why this is happening by breaking it down into different stages of training. So let's go back a little, bit, a little bit. Are we recruiting people to this profession who are at higher risk for burnout? While studies say that that's not the case, medical students matriculate with better mental well-being compared to their age match peers. And then something happens along the line where in medical school they start reporting higher rates of burnout, about 45%, and 52% of them would report depressive symptoms. It is possible that there's something about the training or the culture that may be causing this. This is a table from that study showing that burnout rates were about 27% in matriculating medical students versus 37% in their age-matched college graduates. Depression, again, was much lower at about 26%, with their age-matched peers being about 42%. No surprise there, burnout rates continue to increase in residency at about 58.7% according to this national survey, with numbers as high as 75% being quoted in some studies. Many residents will describe their quality of life as as bad as it can be or somewhat bad. They have high levels of emotional exhaustion, with the national average being about 45.8%, whereas at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, this number was 55%. And there are high rates of depersonalization, about 29% as the national average, versus here at Dartmouth, we were at 34%. 17% residents rated their mental health as fair to poor. This is a table from the same study showing that depression was the highest in medical school. Quality of life was the worst in residency and fatigue was also the worst in residency. 
and it improves as you become an early career physician. In a large study on about 16,000 internal medicine residents, residents reporting emotional exhaustion and low quality of life had lower in training exam scores. <clears throat> Symptoms of emotional exhaustion were the highest in their first year of training, and then they improved. Symptoms of depersonalization continue to increase, though. So it is possible that there is a long-term erosion of idealism that persists even after the exhaustion part gets better. In a recent study uh, from pediatrics in 2017, about 39% of pediatric residents reported burnout. These residents were also more likely to report suboptimal patient care, like discharging patients too soon to make the service more manageable, not fully discussing the treatment options with families, making treatment or medication errors, ignoring the social context of an illness, and then feeling guilty about the care that you provided to the patient. Practicing physicians in 2014 had a burnout rate of 54.4%, and this number had gone up from 45% in 2011. The satisfaction with work-life balance also declined between these years. At Dartmouth-Hitchcock, the rates of burnout last year were similar to the national average for DH attendings. This breaks it down on, uh, based on the subspecialties, with the highest burnout being in the frontline specialties like emergency medicine, family medicine, internal medicine. Pediatrics is somewhere down here, but that's again a rate between 45% to 50%. What's important to note from this figure is that the rates are increasing in all subspecialties. This table summarizes what we just talked about with rates of burnout changing with training, with your training stage being the most in, in residency and then getting better as an early career physician. <coughs> so physicians who reported burnout were more likely to be female physicians, younger physicians. They were more likely to be working in frontline specialties. They were working greater number of hours they were more likely to be in private practice, and they were more likely to have an incentive-based salary structure. Another interesting study from the Archives of Internal Medicine in 2012 showed that burnout rates generally decrease as your level of education increases. So if you have a bachelor's degree, you're 20% less likely than a high school graduate to report burnout. With a master's degree, you're 30% less likely to report burnout. And with a doctorate, you're 40% less likely. However, if you're a physician, you're 36% more, more likely than a high school graduate to report burnout. So we know that this is happening disproportionately compared to the general population and compared to other professionals. But why should we care about it? Well, physicians are important members of, of the healthcare system, and we can safely say that many of our physicians are feeling unwell. This has both personal and organizational repercussions. Personal consequences include things like increased motor vehicle accidents, increased substance use, depression, low morale, stressful jobs being as bad as smoking and obesity for your health, suicide, and this spills over into your personal life as well. It has a cost to the organization as well, with increased turnover. Turnover costs being about 150,000 to 300,000 to replace a physician based on the time taken to search, so it's screen interview and the revenue lost to the health center during that period. In 2015, a study by Welpet all from 48 different hospital ICUs showed that higher individual burnout scores were related to poor overall safety grades. Emotional exhaustion was an independent predictor of standardized mortality ratio. Quality of care gets compromised. There's increased absenteeism. Clinical decision-making gets affected with physicians with burnout reporting more medical errors. And patients of physicians reporting burnout being less compliant and less satisfied. So why is this happening? Well, they're both intrinsic and extrinsic char uh, characteristics that cause it. 
And if you were to take home with you one thing from today's talk, it would be that it's more extrinsic than intrinsic. But we'll discuss both of them. Gabbard in 1985 described some of the inherent characteristics of a physician that can be both adaptive and maladaptive. In their adaptive form, we would all like a physician who has a sense of responsibility to his patients, who assesses and reassesses his decisions and thinks about them, who is altruistic with his time and effort. The same characteristics can be very maladaptive, with feelings of excessive responsibility for things beyond your control, chronic feelings of not doing enough, problems in allocating time to family, difficulty setting limits, hypertrophied feelings of guilt that interfere with a healthy pursuit of pleasure, and then confusion of selfishness with what's self healthy self-interest. The extrinsic characteristics are luckily things that can be changed. Things like work overload, where there are increasing demands without the resources to meet those demands. Lack of control, so will I be able to leave at 3 p.m. for something that's meaningful for me tomorrow? Insufficient rewards. Rewards are not just monetary, but positive feedback has a huge impact on your perception of your work environment. Breakdown of community, trust, support, conflict. Absence of fairness. You want to know that your supervisors are transparent, your workplace is equitable and consistent. Interestingly, Maslach points out that people are generally more concerned about the appearance of fairness than the end result itself. So they want to know that their supervisors did their best to have a fair process coming to a conclusion. They don't care so much about the conclusion. Value conflicts are very common in medicine. And then loss of meaning in work. Physicians who spend at least 20% of their time of their professional effort in dimensions of work that they find meaningful dramatically lowers their risk for burnout. All these extrinsic factors that I talked about point to a larger issue in the culture in medicine. It is the same culture that may have contributed to the decline of the mental well-being of the medical students who started off at a better place than their peers. Our culture has a historical tendency to ignore indicators of distress. It rewards individual achievement and self-sacrifice. And unintentionally, that may lead us to believe that the best doctors have few needs, make no mistakes, and are never ill. There's also something about the nature of this job that is very different from other professionals. It, for another professional, a rough work day may involve longer working hours versus for a medical professional, it involves things like, my patient will never walk again, or I had to tell a parent that their child had brain tumor. Hours are oftentimes inflexible, and there's a feeling of being irreplaceable. Most of us work more than 40 hours a week, which leaves minimal time to pay attention to yourself. There's no time for recovery built in. For instance, if pilots have a near miss, they're not allowed to fly right after. They have a debriefing and a support team. For physicians, we run a code and we move to the next patient to carry out rounds. I would like to pause here to do an audience poll which is a wellness assessment. So how many of you have had a well check in the past? Option A, B, C, D, E. Okay. We're doing quite well here. Uh, we'll compare it to the, uh, to the international data. How much sleep do you get on an average night? That's reasonable. <laughs> And then how many of you feel that you may have neglected your own health? Okay. That's closer to what I read. 
so physicians procrastinate when seeing medical treatment. Uh, about 18% of Canadian physicians who were identified as depressed, only 25% considered getting help, and only 2% actually did. Only 42% of Australian physicians had a primary care provider, and most of them self-prescribed medications. 30% of young Irish physicians had not seen a general practitioner in the past five years. 65% felt they were unable to take time off from work when they felt ill. 92% had self-prescribed at least once. And 49% felt that they had neglected their own health. So what would that do to your job satisfaction? Well, 22% residents will not pursue medicine again if given an opportunity again. And a study from the University of Ottawa showed that 50% of physicians thought of leaving academic medicine every week, and 30% thought of leaving medicine altogether. With that, I will move on to the brighter side of things. So the interventions. Most of the interventions that have been tried in the past have targeted the intrinsic factors that I talked about, and without much attention being paid to the extrinsic factors. Such interventions are not the solution to the bigger problem. It's an effort by our community to save people from drowning without really questioning what's constantly pushing them down. Most of the interventions that I'm going to discuss today stem from the work done at the Mayo Clinic, and we're using this as a model here at DHMC uh, to implement some changes at an organizational level. This is a relatively new model, but the results from the Mayo Clinic are encouraging. After the implementation of these changes in 2013, their rates of burnout decreased by 7%, whereas there was a national increase by 11% during that period. The first big step is to recognize the problem. <laughs> Naming the issue and being willing to listen creates a sense of partnership between the employees and the leadership. There's also a thought that physician wellness should be a quality indicator, as it's both measurable and actionable, and it clearly affects the care that you provide to your patients. As part of acknowledging the problem, there was a survey carried out at Dartmouth-Hitchcock last year and the results that I quoted earlier were from the survey. The second step that they describe is harnessing the power of leadership. So leadership behaviors of physicians, supervisors play a critical role in the well-being of the physicians they lead. From 2,800 physicians at Mayo Clinic, a one-point increase in leadership score decreased individual burnout rates by 3% and increased individual satisfaction by 9%. There, they annually hold a survey where every physician answers questions about their local leader. So I find, and they include questions like, my leader holds career development conversations with me, inspires me, empowers me, is interested in my opinion, treats me with dignity and respect, and recognizes me for doing a job well. This helps leaders become better leaders, and if they're unable to do so, they're sent to training to become better leaders. And if not, then they're asked to step down to assume more clinical responsibilities. This, in a way, gives power to the people. At Dartmouth, we are hoping to hold a training the trainer session this summer, which will be part of harnessing the power of leadership. Recognizing groups that require the most work is important, and holding focus group sessions within those work units. In those focus group sessions, the individuals articulate the macro factors that are contributing to a challenge. And then together with the leadership, they come up with practical solutions. On March 3rd, recently, we did start the first focus group session that was held between leadership and section, uh, section leaders. At the Mayo Clinic, there were seven work units identified in 2013. And all seven of them had a mean, median decrease of 11% in burnout rates. I talked a little bit about this earlier as well, that physicians deal with unique challenges in their role and it's distinct from other professionals. Peer support has always been critical in helping physicians navigate through their challenges. 
The support can be both formal or informal, where you can celebrate achievements, support one another through, challenged through challenging experiences, and sharing ideas on how to navigate the ups and downs of the profession. Physician lounges, Schwartz rounds, ballot groups are all ways in which, uh, in which professionals can connect at work. In 2012, there was a randomized trial at the Mayo Clinic where they provided one hour of protected time twice a month to the control group where they were supposed to discuss their experiences of physicianhood. The, the study group. The control group had the same time to do whatever they liked uh, during that time, but they did get that protected time. Interestingly, both the groups showed improved meaning in work and decreased burnout, but more so in the study group. As a follow-up trial, practicing physicians signed up for a meal in town, about six to seven colleagues getting together, and they were supposed to spend the first 20 minutes of that discussing a question that explored their virtues and challenges of being a physician. They too had improved burnout and improved meaning in work by the end of the year. This is extremely important. Uh, so there's an increasing organizational pressure to increase productivity. And although there is some variation in productivity based on a physician's skill, efficiency, and experience, this is relatively narrow and in, in an equally efficient work environment. So the way that physicians increase their productivity for the most part is by shortening the time spent with a patient, by ordering more tests or procedures, or by working longer hours. The first two approaches erode the quality of care, and the third may lead to physician burnout, which we're trying to avoid here. Um, there's also an organizational need to facilitate honest self-appraisal in order to evaluate if they're holding true to their values and to their culture. Approximately 45% of physicians work more than 60 hours a week compared with less than 10% of the U.S. workers in other fields. Allowing some flexibility where physicians can start a workday earlier or later to work longer hours on certain days and shorter on others. Having part-time or flexible full-time options, job share options can be extremely helpful. There can be some flexibility built into uh, residency as well. Here at Dartmouth in the pediatrics program, we have a caregiver elective, which is a great way to return to work after maternity leave, and it gives you a lot of flexibility. This is the intervention that targets the intrinsic factors, and that's been what has been studied the most. And it works great if you're making changes at an organizational level as well. But if you're just targeting the individual, then a lot of times it's met with skepticism and resistance. You may feel that your leaders are implying that you are the problem, and they're trying to make you resilient so that they can further increase your workload. This is my personal favorite intervention, and it's an initiative from Stanford, where if you had to cover for a colleague or work extra hours coming to work unexpectedly, that time is credited into your time bank, and you can retrieve it as house cleaning services, nanny care, and cooked Blue Apron meals. At Dartmouth, we have the addiction treatment program here. We have the employee assistance program, which is great. We have Live Well, Work Well. And I know you're all doing great with your well checks, but we also have the Live Well, Work Well primary care if you think you haven't been to the doctor recently. This is the Manage Well website, which is great. I think it's one of the best websites that I came across. And you can all log in and make an account. It's not only nice and colorful, but it has lots of things that you can do there. There's a live calendar of things happening at Dartmouth. And it updated me all the events that were happening during the Wellness Fair on the 3rd. Um, it also uh, has physical activities, a webinar library, lots of stuff on sleep hygiene, eating healthy, recipe of the week. So I highly recommend this website. And there is also a mobile app, which you can go to the QR code and download now. And so in summary, I would like to say that physician suicide is a disproportionate cause of mortality for physicians. We need to learn to recognize the signs of distress and help our colleagues when they are distressed. Destigmatize mental health issues in medical professionals. 
Burnout has severe consequences to the person and it has a cost to the healthcare system. We need an organizational and cultural change. Special thanks to all the people who helped me with this presentation. And thank you all for being here today. Questions, mm -hmm. comments, Dr. Nash, Charlene. So I know you talked about this a little bit, but um, we in medicine, it's really important to do cause analysis to look over these events that occur. Um, but we never, we don't pay the same attention to the wins. And so we have, you know, announcements of good things. But if you think about one death, we have 18 meetings about it. But every day, kids with like high flow or CPAP would die without us every day. And we don't really spend the time, you know, going over that. And I wonder if some some of those sort of like more positive, let's have 18 meetings about the kids that we save, might help sort of balance that out. I don't know if that's a question. <laughs> I do think that comes under positive feedback for all the good work that we do. And that does have a great impact on your well-being. <laughs> Dr. I think the, so there, it was interesting where I was comparing the, the stages of training and it's the lowest when you're entering medical school because we're also optimistic when we get into medical school. I still remember that day. And you think you're going to change the world and you're going to fix everyone and everything. And then there's the culture and the stress of the profession itself with some things that we can change and others that we cannot that erodes your idealism. And then you sort of start realizing that there's all this clerical work that needs to be done. A lot of times I'm not like having FaceTime with the patients. I'm sitting on a computer desk, just charting, making sure I have 10 review of systems. All those things add up and it's, I don't know if you're preparing people for that when they're getting ready to go into medical school and we're setting up those expectations. Because when we think of a doctor, we think of somebody who's saving lives without you know, thinking about all the other aspects of it, talking to insurance companies for hours, and all those things are not, not in your head when you're going into medical school. You know, my, my husband and I both have great jobs. We're going to be paying off loans until our kids are done with college. Like, how does that, how does that factor in? Uh, the study that I quoted from 16,000 internal medicine residents also studied the relation of debt to burnout rates, and it was strongly correlated. So the more debt you have, the higher likelihood of burnout. So the financial aspect of it also is extremely important. Allison. Pick up on Dr. Casala's question a little bit, but I had one comment on the, the student piece because I've looked at a lot of the medical student literature in this area. Sometimes I think that measuring people after they've gotten into medical school and before they've started might be the wrong baseline because, like, that's a pretty good line. <laughs> so I sometimes wonder if that's different. Yeah. Maybe we should be measuring them when they're like taking the MCAS or something. <laughs> <laughs> Brought that up too. Yeah. That's a real high. Yeah. But the thing about like what's going on with um, practicing professionals and why do they feel that way? I, I wish I could remember um, the name of the author, but they're one of the better commentaries on that issue was in JAMA. I want to say it was in early March. And I mean, What's happened in terms of sort of the organization of medicine, academic medicine, but also practice over the last few years where this has gone up is 
You're taking people who are incredibly bright and have been trained to think thoughtfully to solve complex problems, and then kind of very quickly lumps everybody into what are sort of bureaucratic and hierarchical organizations over the last decade, and haven't structured them such that there's a participatory empowerment. It's a little bit what you're talking about, about what's good leadership for positions, so I think that's bridges with your talk. But how can you take these, these bright people who have good ideas and not make them feel like they've got just another requirement that they've got to meet all the time? So I think that is some of what was happening. So if anyway, I'll see if I can find that article. Because um, it was the first one that I saw that really described that part of the problem. Yeah. You had mentioned the stigma of seeking mental health care as a physician, and on some of the state licensure applications, it yeah. asks you if you've ever had. I think that should go away. So I don't know what that, that is meant to do or screen for. I don't know what it screens for. It also asks you about things like alcoholism, but the article that I share is about a doctor who has his job and who was very open about his experiences. So I think if we as a community change our perspective on this, uh, we may be able to bring about change. But I do think that's an unfair question to put on there because that would hold back a lot of people from seeking care when, when they need it because they feel that it's going to be tracked down somehow. Dr. Kittredge. Like at the moment of the survey, are you feeling uh, burned out? Or is this a sort of a cumulative? Have you had burnout in the last year or since you were a resident? It's cumulative uh, for like recently. Most questions are about the past two weeks. Uh, it's it's a long inventory, about 67 questions in it, but there is a, the, most of the studies have been on a shorter part of it where they have validated that three questions would be enough. Uh, so they just ask about the three points of emotional exhaustion and depersonalizing. But I think if you were to gather cumulative data yeah. over the full three years of residency or medical school, the first five years of practice, yeah. I'm assuming the number would be quite a bit higher. Mm -hmm. Dr. McClellan, who as many of you know is the Medical Director of Occupational Health and we live our work well. Great presentation. Thank you. Uh, did a wonderful job. Um, we did actually ask uh, our own physicians an open-ended question about uh, what was driving their sense of distress and also what the solution was. And the top three all had to do with relationships. Relationships with with their colleagues, relationships with their patients. And I think that's certainly our experience. People who have been around for a while, that is a huge change in terms of the amount of time we spend on the computer versus actually with people. So I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of us go into medicine is because of that opportunity to develop relationships with colleagues. And that's something our own physicians really miss. Is, is that collegiality and the time with the patients. I agree with that. And uh, I think when you're an intern, you start thinking, oh, maybe it's just intern year and I have a lot of work and that's why I'm not seeing my patients and it will get better. And then, you know, there's all this pressure to have like 10 minute clinic encounters and 15 minute clinic encounters. And you, you may sometimes think that your patient needs more, but you're unable to do that due to the pressures. Dr. Morris, um, I appreciate your presentation very much, and I think the focus on the extrinsic factors is where we should really be looking. Um, I think as physicians, we're highly conscientious, we work hard, and we tend to self-blame. Uh, I remember when the hospital rolled out its physician disruptive behavior program, and we had a presentation, and at the end of it, Leslie Falk, who used to be a faculty here, um, asked the presenter, well, what responsibility is there on the side of the institution for physicians who are driven to this type of behavior, and what questions are you asking? So I think that's really where it needs to focus, because I feel like a system is built up around us that would really be questionable in terms of how we went into it. Yeah, an example of that that I have quoted in the past is, 
you know, there's trash in your house, and you ask your husband to take the trash out, and he says, great, I will, but why don't you go meditate? Meditation's going to be great for me, and I'm going to feel great after it, but when I open my eyes and the trash is still there, I'm going to be super angry. <laughs> so you need to take the trash out. <laughs> A question sort of following up from, from Richard's and, and to Dr. McClellan, maybe. The, so you showed a couple of distressing slides for us here. One, that burnout here is higher than the national average, and that um, one of the things that makes burnout worse is an incentive-based salary structure, which we're moving to, which doesn't bode well for us. So my question is, is there, and it sounds like you're connected to a lot of this, are there other things actually being done here to avoid what would seemingly be an inevitable move to a higher rate of burnout than an already higher rate of burnout? Well, um... Something built where people actually have some mechanisms to deal with their burnout. I think change is a gradual process, and I do think that the assessment of the problem is the biggest step, and it was very encouraging to see that we did move towards it last year. Most of last year was spent in the assessment of the process, and, uh, and I think now the focus is on identifying the problems, and I would encourage everybody to talk to their immediate leaders about the problem so that it is brought to the attention of the leadership and there can be a change based on it and maybe we can take away the incentive-based salary structure. Can I Bob respond to that? There are some initiatives. Yeah, so I'm not in charge of conversation. Uh, and it's obviously a, a big issue and a challenge. But I think thoughtful people are thinking about this, uh, but it's obviously we're not in goal yet. Uh, we are doing a lot and I think we do, I can say that we do have uh, executive leadership uh, support. Uh, so we are, in fact, going to be working very directly with some of the uh, leaders at Mayo uh, who have uh, conducted this work. As um, she mentioned, uh, this is going to begin actually quite soon. In June, we have uh, uh, Stephen Swenson, who gave actually medical grand rounds here <coughs> two or three months ago. It's archived. You know, uh, watch it. Uh, uh, but that's going to be around leadership development, uh, very much so, because leaders, in fact, uh, have a big impact on local culture. So that's going to be one of the first things that we do. Um, we are uh, right now sifting through the results of uh, a number of focus groups, as well as the literature um, and benchmarked uh, institutions to kind of uh, choose the best palette of uh, options to put forward to uh, senior leadership. Um, so I think you're going to see a number of things happening, and we're going to try to keep people in touch with what's going on. From a personal uh, perspective, uh, ManageWell does have a lot of uh, resources up there. We do have meditation uh, trainings uh, in, in a number of ways that you can either do personally. We have apps that you can download, uh, et cetera, et cetera, as well as a no number of other uh, individual. But for those of you who have a particular interest in this, uh, we are going to have um, opportunities to do some training, uh, to train essentially ambassadors who will be working in uh, sections. Um, so that would be good to bring to my attention if you have a particular interest. Dr. Lewinter, Heather. Yes, I'm just responding to, I'm sorry, I don't actually know name, but um, a comment earlier about a longitudinal study. So they're actually conducting an intern study. I don't know if all the other interns are doing it, but we daily put in a score about how we're feeling. It's simply like one day, 10 point scale mood score that we've been doing since the beginning of our intern year. And then they have, a, like, I think it's three surveys that ask us questions just about you know, our mood and if we're feeling supported and those sort of things. So I've been doing it this whole year. And so I'm really curious to see what that's gonna say because that's a really, yeah, that's going to be three hundred sixty-five days since the beginning. So, thanks. <coughs> Where can you find on resiliency, resilience training? Because um, I wonder if we're not doing a good job of training ourselves and, and learners to be resilient. And I don't know why I'm thinking of this, but I have two kids, and I'm thinking of like when they learned how to ride a bike. It was very. They were both very different. One, like every time they slipped, 
It was the biggest deal. It was always my fault. <laughs> and the other one, she would do it. She would fall and like get all banged up, push herself off, and get back on the bike. And I don't know what I did that was different, or if it was something intrinsic, or could I teach that to the other one? Like, I'm just wondering. What are we doing to, to prepare people for the challenge? So there is resilience training. And uh, what I was trying to say with this talk is that it's important and it works well. But we need to bring out a bigger change as well. Because if, the, if there's things around the person that are not well, then changing the person doesn't help so much. The data on resilience training, there's no long-term data on it. But it does have short-term effect. Uh, which which makes sense because if the bigger problem isn't taken care of, then you know in the short term they may feel more resilient and they would say, okay, I'll see 100 patients a day, uh, but then it takes a toll. So for so I'm surprised that you didn't cite one of the most cited extrinsic factors in neurodegenerative is the EMR, the EHR for sure is a stressor, and it's a tool that is challenged. But I want to I'll suggest this for the physicians, anyways, as a you know, like provocative proposition. I want to pick up on what Allison's talking about. I think there is a there is a dissatisfaction because there's sometimes or a significant lack of meaning in work because the work you were trained to do and selected to do as a medical student to troubleshoot and to think deeply about pathophysiology of disease is only a small fraction of the work that you do, and a lot of the work that we do is much more straightforward and doesn't require the level of thought and documentation. The EMR is an ultimate tool to document your thought, your work, your thought to a payer. And we shoehorn a lot of straightforward work into a more complex billing system to get reimbursed for it. So the provocative proposition is, I think physicians have to be prepared to let go of a lot of the care we deliver to other providers to focus on the type of work that Allison cites is meaningful and satisfactory and justifies the level of documentation that's needed. Um, it's doing less and letting, and that also might allow others in the room to step up and deliver, I'm looking at nurses like Susie, deliver care that they're fully capable of, but we don't let them because we need to generate our reuse doing that more straightforward care. So I'll invite everybody back next Thursday night the data is strong, and the evidence is easy for us as physicians to mine on physician burnout, but it's no less true for our other caregivers, which is not just nurses, it's anyone who interacts with patients. We will have an explicit interactive session that won't be about the audience interacting with the speaker, but the audience interacting with one another, and trying to come up with strategies and solutions that we can implement in chat um, next Thursday. Sam Casella and Pam Hoffley and others will help lead that session, which will be far less. This has been great two-directional, but that will be multi-directional. So um, I will let Kamal off the hook right now, unless you have some I, other I announcement. I just want to say like, one thing. Yes, that our future chief has the last word. <laughs> How about, um, sorry about Matt was saying, we are next year hoping to integrate more of the resiliency training into our pediatric residency program. So anyone is interested in being a part of that, we'll do our residency program, and that would be great. But we're actively focusing on that area because of being aware of a lot of these things. So we'll put that out there. Thank you, Molly. You're done.